you for listening to this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. I'm glad I brought my water bottle with. If you don't uh, already have a great appreciation for Chuck Barnes, who I take it is not here, um, you get that if you ever preach or sing on the worship team or whatever, because every week when Chuck is here, he's here early and he brings a whole card of water up to the front, and I can tell that maybe he wasn't here this morning by that. Um, So good morning. Um, Before I forget... Maybe this is a mistake, but you are all invited to Ali and I's house tomorrow. Most of you have already been invited, um, but for several years, we've had a big gathering on Memorial Day, so don't come before 1 o'clock, but come anytime after that if you want to. Um, you know where the auto zone is in Lansing? It's just across the street. You can't miss it. Um, so, 1 o'clock. 1 o'clock. So this morning, um, I'm excited for what the Lord has for us. I want to work a little bit off of what we heard from John Leitzel last week, if you were here. Um, But first, I'd like to just pray. So let's do that. Lord, we thank you for this morning. And of all the things we could thank you for, we take a moment to thank you for the life and power of your word, God, that it moves through us and changes us and gives us life in dead places. And we pray this morning that as we... Uh, just take a brief look at the difference Jesus makes in our lives and in the world, that you would captivate us with that and show us just a little bit of what it means for us to be people who know the difference Jesus makes and live in it. We ask you for that in his name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, last week if you were here, we had... Yes, Paula. (laughs) I guess you should, yeah. Yeah, come on by. What? Of course you should, yeah. I didn't want to make the sermon about the party, but it's a good time. So last week we heard from John Leitzel, if you were here, and John talked to us from Mark chapter 14, right? And there's this beautiful story just before Jesus is, is arrested and taken away to um, kind of the court system, and then he's crucified, and you know the story, right? Um, there's this woman who comes to Jesus. He's with his disciples, and this woman comes to Jesus Um, there's no indication that she knows Jesus, that she belongs there. Uh, Most people agree that this woman probably doesn't have much to her name, but the one thing she does have is a jar of perfume that's worth a year's wages. So imagine something you could sell for $30,000, dollars $60,000 in our age, right? And this woman comes to Jesus, and she takes this jar of perfume, and without asking permission or anything else, she comes in, she breaks the jar, and she dumps the perfume on Jesus. And if you're a young person or a parent of a young person, you may have experienced what it's like for your son to spray on too much Axe cologne, right? It's not exactly pleasant. That's probably what happened here. This didn't smell that good. I'm sure the perfume did in general. But when you dump out the whole tub onto one person at one time, the result is not all that pleasing. So she didn't do this to make Jesus smell nice, right? She did it for something bigger and grander than that. And what happens is that she does this, and the disciples, the the 12 men that Jesus has formed around himself to be kind of his central community, um, they see this woman do this, and they, they react very strongly and negatively to it. And they say, 
how could you have done this when we could have taken that perfume and sold it and done so much good for those who are in need, right? We could have fed the hungry. We could have made all this difference by selling that. And in essence, what they say is, you've wasted it. The essence of the story is that the disciples view what the woman does negatively as if their response is to say, we could have made such a difference with that perfume. But what we learned from John in the story is that pouring out the perfume on Jesus was, in fact, a beautiful thing to do, as Jesus says, because ultimately, it's Jesus who is the difference, right? The disciples are concerned about how can we get this done? How can we accomplish all these tasks? How can we make the difference? And the woman recognizes it's not about what I can do. It's about Jesus. He's the one who makes the difference. He is worth it, right? And so she pours it out extravagantly on Jesus, and he acknowledges that she has done a beautiful thing. So Jesus' response, right, we can interpret it as if Jesus is saying, yes, she recognizes, right, that I'm the one who makes the difference. She recognizes that it's not about her resourcefulness, her ingenuity, her creativity. It's not about getting enough money and resources and able and willing people. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the determining factor in the world. In his death, which she anointed him for by pouring on that perfume, and in his resurrection, he makes all the difference that ever needs making, right? And so this morning, we're just going to explore that a little bit. So let's think about those disciples who were there and who reacted so strongly to what that woman did, right? These disciples, if you've read the Gospels, you may have caught on to this, they're they're kind of a hodgepodge group of people, right? There's, there's 12 of them, and Jesus kind of goes about his days, and he calls one, and he calls another, and they come and follow him and leave everything behind, and they show some pretty extraordinary faith and do a lot of good stuff. Uh, but they're not exactly a group that you would expect to be in community together. One of them, Simon, is a zealot. And if you know anything about zealots, they're convinced that the way God will work in the world is by a violent revolution, an overthrow of the Roman Empire to make Israel great again. That's the zealot outlook, right? Is we're going we're gonna to kick Rome out and God's going to have his way. That's Simon. He's a zealot. There's another one, Matthew, who's a tax collector. They're both Jewish, right? Simon's a zealot. Matthew's a tax collector. He's working for the Roman Empire. He's a tax collector working for them, making his living by taxing his own people, and then taking a little more off the top to take care of himself. These two guys are at odds with each other, and yet, for some reason, around Jesus, they're in community. Add in a couple of ordinary fishermen and a handful of other people, and we end up with a pretty interesting mix, right? The disciples Jesus calls around himself make for an odd group. And two of them, maybe the most famous ones, are Peter and John. Have you heard of Peter and John? Peter's a disciple who always has his foot in his mouth. He gets ahead of himself. He gets ahead of Jesus, which is never a good thing. He's doing crazy stuff, messing things up, and yet he shows a lot of faith and a lot of passion, right? And John is the disciple who writes a gospel account, the gospel of John, and for some reason decides that he can refer to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. So this is Peter and John. They're part of this group who are there criticizing this woman who pours the perfume on Jesus. And get this, just a couple weeks later, by the time we get to Acts 3, which in the timeline of, of the life of Jesus in the early church is just a matter of weeks, 
Peter and John are going to the temple, and there's a guy there who's been lame since birth. He hasn't been able to walk since the day that he was born. And so he sits at the temple gate, and he begs for money. And he asks Peter and John for money. And if you look at Acts 3, you can see something interesting about their response is that they don't respond to him by saying, oh, man, I'm so sorry. We, we almost got our hands on a year's worth of money that we could help you out with. If it wasn't for this silly woman who wasted all this perfume on Jesus, we'd be able to help you out, right? They don't respond like that. Does anyone know what their response is? You can say it or maybe you can sing it, a little hint. Silver and gold, have I not? But what do I have? I have Jesus, right? What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And so this man stands up and walks, and his life is transformed because of the difference Jesus made. In just a couple weeks, Peter and John and the disciples along with them have gone from a place of, we've really got to figure out how we can make the difference, to Jesus is the one who makes all the difference. And it's that idea of Jesus being the difference that is at the very heart of what it means for us to be the church. If we miss that, like the disciples did in, in the Mark story, we end up exhausting ourselves by trying, however sincerely, to change the world by our own efforts and our own ingenuity. It is an absolute game changer when we begin to live in the understanding that Jesus has already made the difference. Jesus has already changed the world. Our job is simply to live as proof that Jesus has changed the world. Does that make sense? It's not our job to make the difference. It's our job to live in the difference that Jesus makes. When the world hears the gospel proclaimed, when they hear the good news that Jesus has changed everything, and they have their doubts about that, we should be able to point at the church and say, here is all the proof you need that Jesus makes a difference. Look at the life of these people. Jesus makes a difference. And what I think is really cool is that the entire New Testament is written in one way or another to communities of people who are trying to figure out what difference it makes or, or how to live in this difference Jesus has made. So every letter in the New Testament, we might say, is written to an individual or a community who's asking, what, is it, what does it look like to live in the difference Jesus makes? How does this affect me or us? The Gospels, of course, tell the story of the difference Jesus makes, how he goes about doing it, so that the people who read them can know it and live into it. And the book of Acts tells the story of <clears throat> the, the movement and growth of the early church as they try to figure out what it means to live in light of the difference Jesus has made. And so what we're going to do quickly is just look at Acts chapter 2 to get a sense of how did those early Christians go about trying to live in the difference Jesus had made. But one question before we look at Acts 2. So, if you're at all familiar with the historical church calendar, you might know that last Sunday is, was the sort of traditional Sunday for celebrating Pentecost, which is in Acts chapter 2, right? It's the day when after his ascension, Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on his people. So it's appropriate that the story we're going to look at takes place just after that because we're just one week removed from it. But let me ask you this. You don't have to answer out loud, but consider this. After Jesus does what he does in the Gospels, he lives his life, he proclaims the kingdom of God, he goes to the cross, he's buried, resurrected, ascends to the throne of heaven, 
and he pours out his spirit on his people, what happens? What happens? And the way I think most of us would respond is we'd say, well, what happens when the Holy Spirit is poured out is that the people begin to speak in tongues. And we'd be right, they do. If you look at Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out and the people start to speak in other tongues and people from different nations and ethnicities can understand them and it's crazy and remarkable and awesome. However, not everyone does that. So there's got to be something more fundamental, right? Something that, that affects everyone in the Christian community that happens when the Spirit is poured out. What is that something? Acts chapter 2, we can pull up here. Verse 42. The result is this. The people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and their possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and having the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Church, what I think is, if we leave with nothing this morning, let's acknowledge that the direct result of the work of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit is that a community is created. Right? The first thing that happens when Jesus does his thing and, and sends his spirit to earth to indwell his people is that a community of people is formed. A community of people who would otherwise not have reason to be together, much like those hodgepodge disciples. Right? The direct result is the formation of a community. One author that I read says, that salvation is a community-creating event. I think that's beautiful. Someone else says, there is no gap, <coughs> excuse me, there's no gap between the gospel and life together. There's no gap. The two are inseparable. So the fundamental result of the work of Jesus and the Spirit is the creation of a community. Everything else the Christian life involves, and there is a lot else that it does involve, flows out of the reality of Christian community. And as communities so often tend to do, this early Christian community begins to reflect the people who are leading it. Who led the early church? Well, it was those same disciples, right? Peter and John and the others who we just heard about, who had just been learning what it means to live in the difference that Jesus has made, are the ones leading this early church. So it should come as no surprise that the life of the community also begins to reflect the difference Jesus makes. When we read this description of the life of the early church in Acts 2, it isn't described as a community that set out, decided together, we got to go change the world. We have to go be the difference makers in the world. Instead, it's a community of people who are devoted to four things. Number one, the apostles' teaching, which is the gospel, simply put. Number two, fellowship, which for them is not <clears throat> 15 minutes after church or what have you, but it's a whole way of shared life living together. Number three, breaking bread, which is simply eating meals together. And number four, prayer, which is prayer. They pray together, right? So there's, the verses after that offer some 
description to how these things work themselves out. But these four things are, the, are the, the main pillars of the early church. These are the things they devote themselves to. The teaching of the gospel, fellowship, eating meals together, and praying together. I think it's astonishing that those four things, we might say, are relatively ordinary, right? Jesus does what he does. He pours out the Holy Spirit, and people start to hang out and eat food. Is that what happens? Is that the story that Acts is telling us? Shouldn't we expect that they would start trying to raise funds and run nonprofits and get elected so that they can really have an influence and make the difference in the world? That's not what happens. What we get in the book of Acts in chapter 2 and in chapter 4 and elsewhere is not a description of a church that's trying to change the world. It's a church that is a changed world. See the difference there? They're not setting out trying to change the world as it is. Among themselves, they are embodying a world that is changed. The early church is a world inside of a world. It's a new world inside of the old world. The difference Jesus has made is this, that he has made this possible for them, to live a different life inside of the world they have always known. Acts doesn't describe a church trying to make the difference. It describes a church that's living in the difference Jesus has made. And so we might be asking ourselves, okay, well, so what you're saying is that the difference Jesus makes is that we can hang out? We can eat food together? Are we already doing that, right? What's going on here? Sort of. But there's, of course, more to it. And what's more to it is that the difference Jesus has made in this story isn't so much what they're doing, although that's part of it. It's who they are doing it Eating together with glad and sincere hearts, as Acts tells us, might not sound all that groundbreaking. I do that with Allie several times a week, right? You guys probably do too. But when it, the people who are eating together are textbook opposites according to the normal way of seeing things, eating together can start a revolution, right? When it's the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich who are eating together and passing the salt and pouring the wine because Jesus is their true wealth, that's extraordinary. When it's the powerful and the powerless eating together because they've experienced the power of Christ, that's extraordinary, right? When it's, when it's the Clinton voters and the Trump voters and the Johnson voters eating together because Jesus is Lord no matter who's president, that's revolutionary. That's the difference that Jesus makes. And so remember, the early church, right, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Well, what did the apostles teach? I'm glad you asked. Let's take an example. Sometime later, the apostle John would write these words. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God has showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That is the difference that Jesus makes, church. That in a world 
ripe with division, which is exactly the world that the early church lived in, a community of people with extraordinary differences who has every reason to be divided can come together and learn to love one another. And this isn't just love like dealing, up with, some, dealing with someone's presence in the room. This is the love of Christ. This is the love of giving up your life for the other person. That's the difference Jesus makes. Is that when we're told we ought to be separated or divided for this or that reason or any other, Jesus makes it possible for us to live in community together. And isn't our world ripe with division, just like the world of the early church? I've been studying a bit this week for something I'm working on about the world the early church lived in, and quite literally, the building blocks of that society were the divisions. Divisions between rich and poor, powerful, powerless, you name it. It's all about the stratification, right? Something like the the closest example I could think of was, uh, and I don't know much about this, but if I understand right, um, the modern-day caste system in the country of India, you guys may have heard of this, but there are just clear-cut, plain-as-day divisions between groups of people, top to bottom. The bottom are the people you don't even touch, you don't go near them, they're absolutely valueless. That's something like the world that the early church lived in. And our world is not all that different, right? All it takes is 10 minutes looking at the news or scrolling through your social media to see that our world runs on division. The proof of division in our world is undeniable. The important question for us is whether the proof of the difference Jesus makes is also undeniable. What our world so desperately needs is a community of people whose life together bears witness to the difference that Jesus makes. Right? The world needs one place where it can look and see that those divisions don't exist. The world needs somewhere, like Dave alluded to, where there's peace instead of violence. That's one simple way of looking at it. That's one way of framing it. Is there somewhere where in a world of violence, people can look and see peace? That ought to be the church. Lansing, this area, needs this church, Living Word, to be living proof that Jesus has made all the difference and that they can come join us, live in that difference, if they so choose. Right? What the world needs is a community whose life, as we sang, is built on the love of Christ because it is the only firm foundation. That is the call, that is the task for us as the people of God. Not to go change the world or make all the difference, but to learn what is the difference that Jesus has already made. What has Jesus made possible among us? Right? The idea of witness is central to what it means to be the church. When I was growing up, um, my understanding of witness, if this is, maybe this will be helpful. I only ever thought about witnessing, right? About going out on street corners and standing on soapboxes and doing that kind of thing and, and preaching the gospel open air style. And I've done a bit of that. It, it didn't take too naturally to me, but it was a good challenge. Um, but the idea of witness is something like this. Can the world look at us and see the difference Jesus has made among us? Can the world look at us and say, something different is happening there? And then, as they get to know us, we simply invite them in, join us in living in it, right? That's what it means for us to be a church that bears witness to the world. For us and for the church at large, to bear witness that Jesus has made it possible for there to be peace instead of violence, for there to be love instead of hate, for there to be unity instead of division. That's the difference Jesus makes. 
And it's the difference that he calls us to live into. So, as I close, if you're willing, what I'd like to do is for us to take a minute. And if you want to, you can, you can close your eyes and kind of center yourself and just think about the people that you are divided from. Right? Just, just kind of go through the Rolodex in your brain and pick out all those people who you're divided from. Maybe you're divided because the world says you are. Right? There are people who maybe have a different religion a different ethnicity, a different sexual orientation, whatever it might be. And the world has told you, you don't belong with those people. It is right that you're divided from them. Or maybe there's people you're divided from because of something that's happened. Right? Maybe they've wounded you and they haven't sought your forgiveness. Maybe they voted for the other person and you have an issue with that. Maybe you had a fight with them and you've never been reconciled to them. But think about the people that you're divided from. Just one or two or a dozen, however many, come to mind. And hold those people in your mind. And think of them not as people you're divided from, but that people, as people because of Jesus who you can be reconciled to. Who Jesus would have live in community with you. And as you hold those people in your minds, hear these words from the Apostle Paul from Ephesians and 2 Corinthians. In Christ Jesus, you who once were divided have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Jesus himself is our peace. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier between them, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his own body the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, making peace between them, and in one body to reconcile to himself uh, them through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. And this from 2 Corinthians, Jesus has died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, do not regard anyone from a worldly point of view. You once regarded Christ in this way, but do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old world has gone and the new world is here. All of this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us that same ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. Go, therefore, as Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through you. Lord, we pray that as the world would seek to keep us divided from those who, in some respects, we feel like we ought to be divided from, you would make a way to break down that wall of hostility and bring reconciliation. God, we pray that the difference Jesus has made in tearing down the dividing wall of hostility would become a reality in this church. Lord, that as we work through the uh, brokenness in our own selves and in one another that leads to so many divisions, that you would bring unity, God. That we would experience reconciliation with you that leads to reconciliation with one another. And Lord, that this would even begin to happen outside of ourselves, Lord. That those in our workplaces 
or our schools or our neighborhoods who we are divided from, Lord, that you would begin to work reconciliation in those relationships, that the gospel would break in and make all the difference. Lord, we lay down at your feet our inherent desire to be the ones who are uh, the game changers in the world, and we recognize that it is Jesus who has already changed the world. And we pray, O oh God, that you would teach us what that means. Teach us what it means for us to be a world inside of a world, to be a new world inside of the old world. God, teach us what that looks like in our family relationships, with our spouses or our siblings or our closest friends, with our coworkers and our classmates. Teach us what it means to be people who acknowledge that Jesus is the difference maker in the world. God, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done among us. And Lord, that as we go from here, the reconciliation that you have worked out between us and yourself would flow out of us and we would experience it in our everyday relationships so that the world might be able to look at us, so that Lansing might be able to look at us and say, Jesus has made a difference among those people. That is our prayer, O oh God. Let it be so among us in Jesus' name. Amen.